societies today are shaped by short-termism. Social media feeds, the latest political headlines or the latest fashion trends. Like it's all about now. Meanwhile, the planet is warming and inequality rises. Existential catastrophes, human extinction. If short-termism got us into this mess, can long-termism get us out of it? Organizations, institutions and people often focus on the short term, but not considering the long term can cause major problems when it comes to global issues like climate change, poverty, deforestation, religious conflicts and migration. For these major issues we must develop long-term strategies. In this series, scientists, stakeholders talk about new views on big issues based on long-termism. Long-termism? Long-termism. Long-termism. What is long-termism? What is long-termism? Every episode we ask this question to different people to see how they view this term. And this time uh, the question will be answered by Rianke Reinhout, full professor institutions, conflict resolution and private law at the Utrecht University. Rianke, great to have you. Well, simple question for you. What is long-termism in your opinion? Well, simple question, but a difficult answer. Uh, I will. I apologize on forehand, but long-termism is not a known concept within the legal scholarship. Um, so I checked the website of this podcast, and actually it states, and I quote, how institutions contribute to embedding focus on the long-term perspectives within research, social practices, governance, and policymaking, end quote. Well, thinking from my field, I would, I think, translate that premises as how the formal institution of tort law can contribute to focus on long-term perspectives within, for example, social interactions between individuals or organizations in society. And just to be clear a bit about tort law, it aims to indicate from a legal perspective when in, and in which cases the risk or a damage, a harm should shift from one person to the other. So as an example, when the adverse consequences of, say, a road accident should shift from the victim to the, the perceived perpetrator. And to make it completely simple, then for that risk shift to occur, there must be a wrong behavior from one person to another. For instance, driving through red light, causing harm to the other person. And in that bilateral relationship, then there must be a repair when there is a violation of a norm. And... If you start from that legal field, so thinking about wrongs in bilateral relationships, then a striking paradox arises when you think about the long term or long tourism, uh, at least I think. Because on the other hand, when you will ask a legal academic how the long term is incorporated in that field, they will tell you that it actually aims at the long term. Because this area of law aims to create legal certainty in relationships now and in the future. So it's actually one of the principles of this field of law, right? To give clarity about when you should pay compensation for a certain type of behavior. And it's also a formal institution, right? So in principle, no one can, can escape from it, not even the state. So in that sense, the long term is intergrained in this field of law. But on the other hand, when you think more about the substance of the field, the idea of long-termism largely falls away. And that is because um, it's, not, it's not really possible to already now ask for compensation that for something that will happen in the future. 
right? The bilateral relationship is not there yet. The harm is not yet there yet. And you can ask for a declaration of rights, as has been done in the Urgenda case. But compensation, and that is what I study, that is highly difficult. This was also, just to make some advertisements for our series of podcasts, it was actually the topic of the podcast on um, the role of the law in the long term. And I've listened to that podcast. And what I can add is that there has been some discussion in my field on this topic. And I think the best example is from Italian researchers, Mattai and Quarta. And what they say is that the whole idea of protection of individuals in a bilateral relationship, taking the occurred harm damage as a starting point, that being an ex post perspective. So perspective in the aftermath uh, that falls short when you indeed want to do something for the future for future generations or or for non-human entities animals for instance and what they actually argue is to make a shift in thinking in this field of law and they say what you should do is not take the bilateral exposed harm occurred perspective but they say you should protect a social and ecological community and that idea of protecting a community and finding representatives to plea uh, on their behalf and then in a case including also costs that will arise from a certain behavior in the future if you think of it that way and they call it the justiciable common the the the, the legal the formal common as a community if you make that shift in your thinking in our fields, then there are more openings to indeed effectively also include the interest of future generations in the now. Wow, thanks for that, Rianke. And I think a great start also uh, looking at communities. In our language, there is no word for nature because we are nature. Indigenous peoples continue to be some of the leading solution-focused voices on the climate crisis. What indigenous peoples are telling them for so many years, they are not listening. In a community that has so many different social uh, and health needs, it's affecting them more than any other community in the area. The community needs to be empowered and needs to be heard and needs to take an action on it. And that's what we have been working on, taking action. Large-scale changes like uh, the COVID pandemic make it clear that inequality exists and is being reinforced as a result. We tend to look at governments for countering inequalities due to these changes, but what role do communities play? How do communities respond? And how does this relate to what is seen or considered customary in the Western world? The main question in this episode will be, what role do communities play in societal change for the long-term benefit? And in this episode of Focused on the Future, we have three scientists, again, that will give their view on this question. Mara Jurks is a sociologist and a professor of comparative social policy in relation to social inequalities. Mujahid Bayrak is an assistant professor in human geography and spatial planning. And Julie Fraser is assistant professor with the Netherlands Institute of Human Rights. And everybody is working at the Utrecht University. In this part of the show, we have 10 minutes for each academic to talk about the issue at hand. The other two academics will ask questions to learn from their colleague from a different field of expertise. And uh, first up uh, 
is uh, Mara. Mara Yerks, the question that we have for you is what role do communities play in societal changes for the long-term benefits? So what is your take on that? Well, I think one of the key things that I look at in my research is the role of communities in social policies and social inequality. And what we saw is that already about 15 to 20 years ago, in a lot of European countries, central governments at the national level were decentralizing their policies to local levels. And by decentralization, we mean pushing the responsibility away from the national government towards lower level government, either at a province level, regional level, or with a lot of local municipalities. And a good example of this is elder care. So the care services that were usually provided by national governments, now those budgets were in the hands of local governments trying to provide these services. But you can imagine that going from one government that controls how much budget there is, how it's spent, which services are provided, even in a country like the Netherlands that's this small, having more than 200 municipalities, how those services are now budgeted and provided, and who decides who gets what, that's a lot of opportunity for inequality. And what we see then is for individuals who are trying to combine having a paid job with care responsibilities for parents or partners or kids, together with having a life and living somewhere, that the services they get at the community level can really differ. As a response to this, alongside official formal policies from governments, we see a lot of local organizations and sometimes even groups of citizens banding together to try and provide services that maybe local governments don't provide. And in some places they call this socially innovative practices. And that's a potential in the long term for the ways in which communities might respond to an absence of policy from local governments. But another key question thinking about this is how does where people are living within these communities affect their access to and ability to access services that might be there, whether this is childcare, elder care, but even things broader than that for work-life balance, public transportation, housing, for example. So I think that communities can play a really important role in potentially addressing these inequalities, thinking more long-term about community development, the development of housing structures, public transportation, re-innovation, things like this. Um, but that this has to happen together with local governments to determine what gaps are there in service mm. provision. What are the needs that people have at this local level? Yeah. And it's funny because you call it in the fact that the budgets are going to the uh, municipalities is a is a possibility for inequality. Yes. You could also say the democracy in mun municipalities is far more direct than at the country level, at the, at the national level. Mm -hmm. And you could also say the, the influence of communities on the local uh, democracy is far larger than on the national level. So you could also say, well, perhaps it even makes the inequalities smaller. I think that was the idea, right? I mean, I think by decentralizing the responsibility for these things, the idea was that municipalities can get a better sense of what people need in a local community. Unfortunately, I think the reality shows that people working within these governments really struggle to find time to actually provide that type of on-demand services to, to really understand. And in some municipalities, this goes really well, and in other municipalities, less so. Mm. And I think part of that is, do municipalities communicate with each other? And sometimes they do in these municipal, um, I'm thinking in Dutch, but in terms of this, this um overarching organization of municipalities, for example, but this doesn't always work. 
And so it might just be that where you're living, mm. you don't have access to certain services provisions or the decisions of who gets these services are taken in such a way that you don't get it when you're living in Amsterdam versus in Nijmegen or in Utrecht. Yeah. And that that's the type of inequality that ends up being potentially less visible, but could lead in the end to different socially innovative practices from organizations or groups of citizens. So there's lots of different things that go on here. Yeah. All right. So now it's time to see what curiosity is uh, being um, ignited at uh, your colleagues, uh, Mara. Uh, so Muka, what's the question that wanders through your head? Very interesting research. Um, you haven't mentioned the word, but it came up to my mind, and that's neoliberalism. To what extent is decentralization actually a political outcome? Because obviously the then the narrative of the central government is like by shifting the responsibilities to the local governments, we can have more direct democracy, we can be more efficient, we can be more focused on the community. But at the same time, you're saying, well, some municipalities do a great job, others don't. And communities even have to now come up with their own groups or their own initiatives to provide these very important services. So to what extent is this a political problem? I think that's an excellent question. Politics is always behind a policy, right? We can't see policy without its politics. And in this case, you see variation across countries. In the UK and the Netherlands, for example, where decentralization was often driven by budget concerns, and particularly in the UK, what they would call austerity politics, the need to really cut funding because you're trying to balance a budget. There you see that that's very much a politically driven neoliberal decision and a push for that. The Netherlands is kind of a mix Um, but interestingly enough, what you see in a country like Spain, where they've had a lot of socially innovative practices around childcare services or early childhood education and care, that that's not necessarily to do with a neoliberal push, but rather more of a historical and political context that the Spanish government has generally said families are the primary people responsible for providing care and the government provides some but not everything. And as parents continue to work more and are trying to do these things, they're saying, but that's not enough. And the access to publicly provided childcare services is too little, so we need something else. So it's not an absence of politics in that situation, but rather a different type of politics that has shaped the Spanish experience of it. So in, any, in all the different cases, you can certainly see how politics plays a role in this, but it's not always a neoliberal form of that political pressure. Mm. And does this mean that in that the politics behind it do they also influence the fact if there are inequalities arising or or not absolutely because politically whether we make this explicit or not there's always a, de- a normative departure point in a policy what is it that we're trying to do with this policy and sometimes that's very explicit if you look at a, at a law for example or a policy document it'll say we are doing this because we want this to happen we are putting this responsibility in the hands of municipalities because we want to balance our budget or we think municipalities can better offer these services. But in many cases, it's implicit. They don't say it. And you have to kind of look at the bigger political discussions taking place um, around this. But absolutely, that's an important part of it. Yeah. All right, Julie, your question. Thanks, Mar, for this introduction. My question is sort of twofold, and I was wondering about the Spanish example, where you said that the state says that families are supposed to be providing these services, so it gets decentralized. And in those situations, and perhaps in the Netherlands too, 
Uh, does the state still provide funding for the family to provide those services, or is it done then out of families' own income streams, perhaps leading to inequalities? And in those cir some sorts of situations, is it also done in a more culturally appropriate way, because local communities or even families can provide the sorts of care that their family wants or perhaps needs based on religion or different sorts of beliefs or philosophies? And then... Uh, the second question then to you is then, do you see this as a good thing overall in terms of the decentralization and having these things done at different levels? Or should the state really be doing and providing these sorts of services and that actually this is just really undermining the role of the state and what we should be expecting from them? All right. Those are some big questions. The first one, let me start out by saying that in the Spanish case, it's not necessarily decentralization that's putting the emphasis on families. It's more that the history of the development of family policies in Spain has taken place that most of the emphasis has been on families to do this implicitly or explicitly, whether that's care for children or care for elderly people. So it wasn't necessarily a decentralization, but just separate from that. Whether or not it allows families to kind of create the care that they'd like, colleagues of mine in Spain have done a really interesting case study looking at childcare services in Barcelona. And they actually show that what happens is it's presented as a potential way of empowering mothers by getting them involved in this early childhood education and care. But at the same time, they're critical and say it might be empowering them. It could also be reinforcing their position as a traditional housewife and mother, which has long-term implications for women's position economically, socially, mm -hmm. etc. In terms of the second question, I actually try and avoid making too much of a normative statement there, right? So as a social scientist, we can never be 100% objective. We try to be as independent as we can. There is no one magic way of creating social policies to avoid social inequality. But what we can do is understand the normative underpinnings of those policies, because as Muka was just saying as well, if this is a neoliberal push for budget cuts, the potential effects for social inequalities are going to be much greater because in a neoliberal paradigm, greater social inequality is acceptable. And those are societal discussions to be had. How much inequality is acceptable in society? And you can never have full equality everywhere. So it's a trade-off of inequality in one area for more equality in another and a societal discussion leads to political votes around, okay, then this is the p policy that we're going to pursue. Mm. So I think if you were to take it from a perspective of gender equality, for example, then I would say that the decentralization to local levels has put a lot of emphasis on families where women end up being the implicit carers, which causes more gender inequality. So if you're trying to improve that, then you'd consider actually trying to put more of those services in the public sector or providing them with a bigger budget whether at the central level or the local level. Mm. And is that even so if your policy behind it would be to strengthen the, the uh, women's position on the labor market, for example, if you would have that kind of policy behind the decentralization, would it also be the effect that the inequality even then would be greater? Yes, we've seen actually that in most countries where the push has been to improve women's economic position only, so to improve their labor market position, that actually implicitly most of those laws allow people for quote-unquote individual choice. And when it comes down to quote-unquote individual choice, mm. these choices are shaped by social and cultural norms, in the end, that women will generally take on more care responsibilities than men because their labor market position is generally weaker and women are seen as being able to provide better care than men, whether or not that's actually the case. All right. Well, 
thank you, Mara, so far. Um, let's move up to uh, our next uh, academia of this, uh, of this episode. Mujahid Bayrak. So, Mujahid, what's your take on the question? What role do communities play in societal changes for the long-term benefit? Yes, so most of my research is, uh, is on the global climate crisis. Um, and particularly the role of local and indigenous communities in coping and adapting to the global climate crisis. And in my research, I've often seen that there's often unrealistic uh, burden placed upon communities in Asia, Africa, or in, in remote places in terms of adaptation and mitigation of global climate change. So, for example, I've done research on, it's called the Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Forest Degradation Program, or RADD. It's a United Nations levels program in which developed countries pay developing countries money to save carbon in their forest. Because if you cut forests or if you cut the trees, carbon dioxide is released, which contributes to global climate change. So, developing countries, they can kind of calculate how much carbon do they have stored in their forest and they can sell that either on a global carbon market or a voluntary carbon market in exchange for monetary benefits and so on. So I was interested to know how local and indigenous communities in Vietnam, for example, were involved in this program. And the findings of my research were quite shocking. Oh. Because a lot of indigenous people, if we talk about carbon neutral lifestyles, it's a buzzword, but it's a word that we often use. These people have not contributed to climate change a bit. Not at all. Mm. Then you see these people coming in buses, like a bunch of missionaries going up the mountains, telling people you should be involved in the REDD program. Why? Because otherwise you will have to face the consequences of climate change yourself. Because these people are obviously affected by global climate change. So what they do is telling these people to conserve their forest in exchange for money. How much money is not decided because that's decided on a global level. How much they are being paid. But what a lot of these people don't know is that they lose their access to forest land. And their forest, especially for a lot of forest dependent communities, are the main source of their livelihoods. They get their food there, they get the resources there, they get their energy there and so forth. So they're now suddenly enrolled in this global program, fighting a global problem in which they did not contribute a single bit to that. So this is a very unrealistic burden placed on a community. They did not contribute to that. Hmm. Another shorter example is I have... But Muka, it also yeah. sounds like we're trying to solve a problem uh, with the indigenous people that's not there. Because if they're already living at almost carbon neutral, why are we trying to solve anything there? Well, the... That's an interesting question, but the point is they do suffer from climate change. So uh, a lot of my current research now focuses on how people adapt to climate change, which mm. is an, maybe a podcast for another time. But the thing is, is that they do face the consequences of global climate change. They're dealing with unusually long droughts. They're dealing with extreme weather. They're dealing with changing weather seasons and so on. Their crops are failing. At the same time, they're struggling and competing with the market economy and so on and so on. So it's a problem that they are solving, which does not necessarily has a local cost. It has a global cost to that. But I guess it's easier to convince people that live, you know, in, 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 in the margins of society, in an, um, kind of outside of the main society, it's easier to convince them to stop using their forest than 
pointing at the real perpetrators, like mm. the big transnational companies that are, <laughs> well, mainly the, 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 the blame for climate change. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Wow. The first thing that comes to mind is maybe a strange question for, for somebody who's doing research, but I can, I can imagine that you're doing research on it, but also something is happening, happening to you emotionally when you're talking about this. I mean, you're not... So can you elaborate on that? Well, you, you should be passionate about your research. You should be caring about what you're researching. Yeah. Otherwise, how can you think of constructive engagement? I mean, yeah. Mara mentioned that you can't be fully uh, objective, but we should not strive for objectivity. We should yeah. strive for social action. Yeah. And obviously, you can be a bit emotional if you are seeing what's going wrong. Yeah. Uh, the point then is, is what kind of solutions do you put forward? And that's a much more difficult question. Yeah. But would you say that this is just looking at the wrong place for a solution and we shouldn't do anything over there? Or do you think it's, it's, it's not fair to place a part of the burden of, on these, these indigenous people um, if you're not also putting the, the, real, the, the real problem, addressing the real problem at the, at, the, at the place that you should address it, like in the Western world where we are emitting these unbelievable amounts of carbon dioxide? Well, look, deforestation is a real problem and it's something that needs to be stopped. So I definitely not saying we should not do anything. The point is that deforestation, we just mentioned the role of politics. There's so many causes of deforestation that by simply paying people for not cutting down the forest will not work. If that was the solution, then we would have solved deforestation a long time ago. Mm. Causes of deforestation are more complicated and are more complex. So we definitely need to address the problem of deforestation because it's the, I think the third biggest cause of global climate change, if, if I mean, don't cite me on it, but it's, it's a huge cause of global climate change. Um, but instead of looking for solutions that take the easy way out, paying people to not take cutting down the forest, we should really go for the root causes of deforestation. And then that's a different kind of dialogue that we will be having, but um, it's a more complicated one. Yeah. Yeah, because also while doing it, you're taking away the the normal way of living that has been there for centuries for uh, for these indigenous people. Mario, you had a question. Yes, I'm just I'm wondering because in terms of what you're saying for what's happening with the indigenous communities there, where you're doing research, it's bringing to mind that this is unjust from a distributive justice point of view, right? In terms of an an unfair distribution of who's paying and who's getting to appreciate, you know, who gets to do all the polluting in the first place and who's paying for it in the end. I wonder whether some justice might be got for communities and how you think about that if you were to look for other forms of justice. And I'm thinking particularly about Nancy Fraser's way of looking at justice, about recognitive and representative. So to what extent do people see themselves in the policies that are created or do they feel they have voice? And what you're saying is that they haven't had voice in this. So can you think of a way that justice might be gotten for these communities in a different way other than just distributive justice? Uh, it's a very good question and I'm not sure if I can answer that, but um, we should not see these communities as uh, without having agency they definitely have agency and they definitely have their voice they definitely have their own agendas so actually a lot of people they won't want to participate in red actually if you talk to a lot of people they want to uh, participate but not for the reasons you think they they, they want um, because red plus and we talk about decentralization before but it's also a push factor towards um, 
distributing forest land to local communities because the idea is, is for with same with your research people have uh, in this case forest lands they are more willing to take care of it but what a lot of people want is that for example i went to this very remote village in vietnam in Kontum province <laughs> well they, they 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 doing agriculture for their own food for their own livelihoods mm. um, and they did not have forest land but they saw that everyone around them was growing coffee so a lot of people wanted to participate in red plus why because once they would get forest land allocated they would cut down the trees oh. and start growing coffee which is not strange i um i fully agree with them because you know it's not like they're living isolated and they don't know what's going on around them so if that is justice i don't know but it gives people other ways because it opens up a kind of power vacuum in which communities can actually take up the initiatives and say well i'm willing to participate in a program like this but maybe not <laughs> why you want us to participate in thanks wow i'm really enjoying your 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 enthusiasm and, and your your power on this so wanted to compliment you on that okay julie What's, what's, what's bubbling in your mind? What question do you have? Lots. A lot, lot is yeah. bubbling in my mind. Uh, I'm from Australia, and we also have a very large indigenous community there that have existed for some 50 to 60,000 years before Europeans came to Australia. Um, and I'm thinking about a very recent case from the Human Rights Committee, which is a UN body. And they said there that Australia was violating the rights of certain Aboriginal people that live in the Torres Strait by not protecting them from the impacts of climate change. So I think it's a sort of good example of what you're talking about here. And it makes me reflect on the relationship between indigenous people and the state as sort of a Westphalian creation. And I wondered if I could invite you then, Muka, to reflect perhaps a little bit on colonialism and its linkages with climate change that we're seeing today. So perhaps draw a line for us. That's a very good question. And I know there's a lot of great research coming from Australia with the idea of country and uh, um, uh, relationships and so on. Um, I mean, in Vietnam, obviously, um, a lot of issues that we are seeing comes from domestic colonialism, internal colonialism. The highlands of Vietnam until recently have not been inhabited by the by, by the ethnic majority, the Kin people. They have been inhabited by yeah. The original name would be the the Montagnards, yeah, the the indigenous peoples of the highlands. So after the establishment of the modern state of the Socialist Republic of uh, Vietnam, uh, there were a lot of resettlement programs in which the government was resettling people from the lowlands into the mountains with the idea of you have these huge uh, tracts of land that you would grow, that you would be able to, um, to, to grow your food as a way of changing the demographics, changing the social structures of the people that are living in the highlands. The same idea comes with forest land allocation. You could say, well, that's a great thing because people can own the forest land. But customary institutions have already decided a long time ago who owns the land, how that is divided, how that's being exploited, how, um, how that is being managed. But with the whole influx of new migrants from the lowlands going towards the highlands, a lot of traditional ecological management systems are no longer sustainable because the population density is way too high and people are now there living to that. So a lot of issues related to climate change that people might be facing might not even be directly linked to global climate change, but might be linked to other factors as well, such as internal migration, state policies, engaging in the market economy, and so on. For example, the Vietnamese state is less and less talking about farmers and more and more talking about agricultural entrepreneurs. Why are they doing that? It's because farming is a way of life. Agri-entrepreneurs are part of a capitalist system, 
that are engaged in the market econ economics. So I fully agree with you. If you want to look at climate change and impacts on indigenous peoples, you cannot ignore aspects related to colonialism, unequal power structures and other um, government policies that might exacerbate or, you know, improve the situation because not all that bad, of course. Yeah. Thanks, Mugan. Thanks, Julie, for that question. Um, well, we're moving up to Julie Fraser. Julie, also the same uh, main question for you. What role do communities play in societal changes for the long-term benefit? It's a great question. So thank you for inviting me here to be part of this podcast. And I'm also thrilled to go last because I think what I talk about is about women's rights. So it's something that Mara touched on, but also looking now as well also at climate change and the environment. Um, and I also want to take a positive spin to this all as well to perhaps end on a high note. Um, because for me, I see that communities play a huge role in societal changes for the long-term benefit. Now, Societies change because of communities. Communities are in charge of norms and cultural practices that determine what we do, shift the way we do things. Culture is constantly changing, it's dynamic and it's contested. So even though we feel like we've been doing things for, for hundreds of years, in fact, there's always this constant change happening to our practices. So communities can and do shift norms. That can be a good shift or it can be perhaps a bad shift, depending on what the change is and what your framework for evaluating it, it is. But I want to focus on the framework of human rights law and also on positive changes that communities can bring to realizing human rights. And human rights have at the core of them this idea of equality and addressing and removing all sorts of inequalities and non-discrimination. Human rights are also something that's about the long term. Uh, you know, there's short term things that we can do, but ultimately realization of human rights is something that is going to take years and years and years. Um, and that's okay. So despite the fact that I'm very impatient as a person, I have to accept the fact that the realization of human rights and that everyone enjoying their human rights around the world is something that's going to happen in the long term, not necessarily the short term. I have research um, that I'm going to refer to, which is from Indonesia. And in my research, I really focused on the role of social institutions and how they can change norms for the long-term benefit in terms of realizing human rights. Now, social institutions uh, include all different types of communities. So it can include universities, it can include the media, it can include monarchies, um, it can include a whole range of different social institutions that may be formal or informal. And one of the biggest social institutions that we have around the world is religion. And so my study in Indonesia looked at how religious groups play a huge role in addressing a range of human rights. And I looked specifically at Islam because Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world. And I looked specifically at women's rights. So I looked at the ways in which Muslim women helped protect the rights of other Muslim women to enjoy their reproductive rights and specifically to get access to family planning. And in my research, I found that the women had incredible amounts of agency and they didn't necessarily draw from international norms that promoted women's rights to family planning, but rather they drew on Islamic norms to family planning. And so they interpreted the traditional sources of Islamic law, which are the, the Quran, the Sunnah, the Hadith. And they looked at these sources of Islamic law and they looked at practices of Islamic law in Indonesia. And they came together with an argument that said, actually, under Islamic law, we should have access to family planning because it's in the benefit of the woman and it's in the benefit of the child and it's in the benefit of the family. 
And so these women within Islamic organizations then convinced the larger uh, organization and their communities that through Islamic norms, women actually had a right to access a whole range of different reproductive healthcare services and products, including the right to family planning. And this I found was really fascinating because these communities did things that wouldn't have necessarily been possible if they had used other norms or external norms. And it was able to be done based on local norms rather than having to always have redress to this international system. And that's opposite to how the international system usually tries to work. It sort of is a top-down system where we have international norms and they have to be implemented then domestically and the state has to do all of these things. But in this case of Indonesia, it wasn't the state that was acting. It was women on the ground within their own communities based on the norms that are most persuasive and most legitimate for their communities. And this changed the norms. Mm. And now you see very different practices in Indonesia from last century in terms of uh, the size of families, women's access to contraceptives. It's not perfect. As I said, still a long-term goal, but it's better. And this is one example, I think, of ways in which local communities are making differences. And to tie in with what Muka was saying about climate change, we see the same group of women also now using Islamic norms and practices to justify environmental protections and actions against climate change. Um, so we have things like eco-fatwas and eco-jihad, which is where these communities are mobilizing amongst themselves with their organizations to go out and... Um, clean up rivers or to protect endangered species or to prohibit uh, burning of um, agriculture. So in the same way, you can use this same mechanism for different pro um, mm. problems facing society. And could you detect where where this started? Because I can imagine that if you if you think about it rationally, you could say, well, this is a very smart way of uh, of, of changing of uh, of using social innovation to to use the 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 cultural basis that you have instead of well some international thing that doesn't have any feeling or any uh, rituals within the within uh, the society so could you could you detect where it started and if it was just something that happened or it was a it was a deliberate thing so it's a question that goes back to how as societies we organize ourselves and religion, Islam specifically, have been around for hundreds, thousands of years. So in terms of looking at where it started, this practice has been going on in communities for centuries. Um, and in Indonesia, it was typically done by these religious communities, by religious organizations, through the mosques, these sorts of things. But really, for my example, looking at women's rights, it started changing last century when women started getting access to education. And women started reading the Quran themselves. Women started interpreting mm. religious norms. Women started getting together as collectives and making Islamic arguments about things in their lives. So here, I think it's an example of who's at the table, who's being influential, who's making decisions. And now we see groups of women um, Islamic clerics or scholars, ulama, who are now making fatwas that are relevant for women and other people's lives, but reflect women's experiences. And so they do so in a way that's different traditionally when it was largely just men making those determinations based on their own experiences. And women themselves very much credit also the feminist movement last century and its interpretation into um, Muslim feminism and how that has then been created by this community themselves. Wow. 
interesting i'm interested in uh, in your take on that uh muka what 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 rattles your curiosity well i like the word eco jihad because <laughs> my name is mujahid and mujahid is the one that conducts jihad so <laughs> if i can call myself eco mujahid that would be a good uh, twitter <laughs> name but i've never been on twitter and i don't plan to do so but um with this kind of research, I think it's very relevant and I'm very happy that, that you do this kind of research. Um, my question is about uh, representation. And if you are doing research with certain uh, groups of people, or in this case, women's organization, I assume, or other kinds of social institutions, how inclusive are they? And how are they dealing with intra-group heterogeneity? So um, are they, um, because I have the same problem with my research is how do you define the community? Where do you set the boundaries? I also got really excited by the term eco-jihad. It blew my mind. Um, and that's kind of where I went down this rabbit hole then looking at all the ways in which the Muslim community in Indonesia and around the world have started to also address and tackle climate change. Your question about the community. So I also got quite lucky in Indonesia because it's the country in the world with the largest Muslim population, but they also have these huge Islamic organizations. Um, one is called Muhammadiyah, another is called Nadlatul Ulama, and literally millions of people are part of these religious organizations. And they are very, well, they're old, but they're also very complex in terms of their organization. So Nadlatul Ulama, for example, runs a lot of primary schools. They also run universities. They have specific groups for young women. They have specific groups for older women. They have fatwa committees that sit sort of at the top of the organization and then answer requests for fatwas on particular topics. So I worked mainly with those organizations. Uh, and I worked with the women who are part of the women's groups within those communities. So as I said, I had a bit of a head start there in terms of determining my community. But I don't want to make out like they were homogenous. These issues are still contested, absolutely. Um, there's also a backlash a little bit in terms of women's rights. There was a new bill that was put out by um, the Indonesian government recently that also um, limited sex outside of marriage. And you can only get access to contraceptives if you are married, which means that there's a whole range of people then who aren't allowed to have access to contraceptives, which is a problem. But that was how I, I looked at the group and that was how I interacted with them. Um, another big issue in Indonesia is also in relation to the LGBTQI plus community uh, and the trans community. And these are also groups that because they're not allowed to get married, they also then wouldn't legally have access to contraceptives and these sorts of things. So that is a big issue as well. So as I said, the long term, not the short term. <clears throat> Mara, your question. This actually gels really well because I was triggered when you started out by saying community is a contested concept, right? Because it really is. And I don't want to end on a low note necessarily, but I, in thinking also in response to what you said to Muka, so if community is a contested concept, although these women's groups are using their religiosity for positive change in their own human rights, how precarious is their position when we consider globally that religion is often used to exclude people and to exclude people's access to human rights? So thinking about the long term, you know, while this seems, in your view, to be a positive development, how precarious is their position? And to what extent is that concept of community potentially leading to exclusion rather than inclusion? Yeah, it comes down to an issue of power. 
ultimately. Uh, and that was something that I looked at specifically was who's in the room, who has uh, and the ability to shift these norms. Um, and that does change over time as well. So as I said, in Indonesia, it really started to change when women had access to education. Um, and education is really an empowerment right. Um, and as I said now, also there's still a pushback in Indonesia, but also around the world in relation to women's rights. So this goes back to the contestation and the dynamism. Um, things change in both directions. Uh, so it's, I think, something that we have to continuously work on. But I think we're most effective in using something like these local communities because those women are able to be seen to be more legitimate and to make arguments that are more persuasive to the people within their religious community that they are engaging with and that they are seeking to convince ultimately. Um, and there have been others that tried to shape these same norms but did so unsuccessfully because they didn't use this process. Um, and so I think there we have to look at the fact that in terms of effectiveness, um, these local communities, these local norms, these women who are speaking up for their own rights within their own context and using their own vocabulary um, are going to be powerful. At the same time, some of these women only use Islamic norms and Islamic ideas. Others also draw on international well, norms, so the feminist movement, but they also refer perhaps to human rights as well. So some of them exclusively stick to sorts of their local cultural approaches and others draw from international movements and also international law to help enforce their arguments. And the women I spoke to said that that can often be a political choice. Do I refer to these external norms? Do I discuss ideas like gender or not? Is that going to aid my argument or undermine it? Mm. And there was a recent decision, I think 2019 now, from the Indonesian Constitutional Court, where the Constitutional Court said that child marriage in Indonesia was unconstitutional. And they based their decision on Indonesian law, of course, but they also mentioned CEDAW and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights Law. So you can also see then that there is a conversation between these norms um, at different levels. Well, thanks, Julie. Uh, it's time to round up. Well, you all, uh, all three of you, you've been listening and asking questions, having a, a, a short conversation, of course, because these are such huge topics uh, to your academic colleagues. And the, the last question that I have for all of you is, uh, well, what's your main new insight? What, what is something that you are uh, puzzled about? Uh, where should I start? I'll, I'll start with Mara. Thanks. I, I have so many insights right now. My brain is buzzing. <laughs> but I think one of them is actually seeing the continuity across these completely different topics. I think we could have sat here another 12 hours discussing all these different ideas and the connections between communities and these underlying questions of justice and human rights and equality and all of these things going on. Um, and then in the long term, communities are creating all kinds of change. And the contextualization of that change within societal institutions, culture, political aspects and things like this. So I'm, I'm walking away thinking about not only the developments I look at, mostly from a European or a Global North perspective, but how this actually links up to other community efforts going on in other parts of the world. All right. Thanks, Mara. Okay. Um, yeah, very much agree with Mara. Um, and I see more similarities between our research than... And differences. Uh, my main takeaway would be the concept of agency. That agency plays such a crucial role. Um, I mean, I would love to hear from Mara, for example, whether among the Dutch elderly, they are like 
uh, what kind of agency they showcase and whether that you know what kind of initiatives came out from that and from Julie about Muslim women not only using international law but actually using local norms and local values in trying to push a certain agenda that has a universal outcome. Um, and I think that would be my biggest takeaway is the role of agency and the ways of how we can nourish that. So instead of saying, well, you know, you are a community, you need to come up with initiatives, it's better to look at those agents that are coming with these initiatives and that we are kind of safeguarding whether they're inclusive and whether they are you know needs to be strengthened through other kinds of um, solidarity that we can have and you mentioned the, the role of emotion emotion is key in that yeah if you are not emotionally concerned with the people you do research with you can't nourish agency you can't talk about an agency you probably wouldn't come on a podcast like this so <laughs> that's my main takeaway yeah thanks um julie uh, I really liked both of those points, Mara and Muka. I think I'm going to add one, being an international lawyer, which is the role of the state. And I think we have to look at here, what is the state doing internally? How is it decentralizing or distributing resources or not? What are states doing at the international level in terms of agreeing climate policy, in agreeing the Paris Agreement and different, uh, different obligations there that states have to mitigate against climate change and fund adaptation? And the question that I think I have is, is also in terms of human rights, the state is the one that is obliged to fulfill human rights. And what I'm thinking about here is, is what is the state going to look like 100 years from now? What do we need the state to change? How should the state adapt in order for us to have this longer term view that protects rights um, into the future and also addresses climate change? Well, thank you, all, all three of you. Uh, great to see all these re research from different fields and all these knowledge from different fields coming together. So uh, thanks a lot, um, Mara Jurks, Mujahid Bayrak, uh, Julie Fraser, and of course, Rianke Reinhardt, all working at the Utrecht University. And thank you, of course, for listening to Focused on the Future. There's more to come, so please subscribe via your favorite podcast platform. <laughs> <laughs>